Let me just remind you what uh, Gwyneth read to us. That's verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Let's uh, ask God to help us understand that. Heavenly Father, we want to ask that you will help us to understand your word. We want to thank you for the ways in which um, uh, you have spoken to us again and again in this church and for so many of us in our, uh, in our lives uh, in different places and at different times. We ask this morning, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you will be very present amongst us and you'd make this ancient word your word for us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can God ever be angry? very common answer to that question down through the years has been no. Um, for instance, in the, the Council of Chalcedon, a meeting of eminent men in 451, um, they uh, insisted that God is without passions. He is um, uh, impassible, as they, they put it. That is, uh, he, he doesn't, uh, he's, he, he is not rocked by emotions in any way, but uh, eternally the same. They uh, said, the synod expels from the priesthood those who dare to say that the Godhead of the only begotten is passible, can have emotions. Jumping uh, to the 20th century, um, uh, uh, a gentleman called C.H. Dodd uh, wrote a famous commentary on uh, uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans where he noted that uh, in Paul's writings, Paul speaks very freely of God's love but when the subject of wrath comes up, he uh, speaks in, a, in what, what uh, Dodds called a curiously impersonal way about the wrath of God. Dodd concluded that actually um, God's wrath, not really God's wrath at all, it is, it's just the, the natural outworking of the consequences of sin in the world. How could God actually be angry? And then uh, most recently, in the 20th, uh, 21st century, um, Steve Chalk has written a, a book entitled The Lost Message of Jesus. And that book has lots and lots of good things to say um, in it. Um, but uh, one of the central things is Steve's insistence that, that God is not angry with us. He is only angry with the situations that we get ourselves into, with the consequences of sin. How never is God personally angry with us, says Steve Chalk. But I want to ask a question. Is all anger um, suboptimal vindictiveness by God? If it, if, it was, uh, uh, if, it, if it belonged to God at all? Is all anger wrong? 
Actually, I want to suggest to you this morning that, that, that those who deny that God is ever angry have, have, have missed something vital and central about the true God. They have actually misunderstood the passion of God's love. Indeed, they've misunderstood the, the passion of all true love. They failed to grasp how love reacts and must react in a fallen world. See, uh, God's love is passionate. He is not an impassable, distant God unworried uh, uh, by emotions. Everywhere in the Bible he is revealed as passionate. Amazingly, the Bible also says God's love is vulnerable. God's love feels pain when violated. And yes, God's love feels anger when violated. To, to downplay that is to miss the true passionate love of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God of true love and that is wonderful news in, uh, in profound ways for Christians as we will see at the end of, uh, of this morning. But we also must realise it is heart-stoppingly frightening news. They say, don't they, that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But the Bible says hell is the fury of a God scorned. His love is so intense, so passionate, it must issue in anger when we trample him in the dust. That's what was happening to uh, Israel in uh, Isaiah's day. Um, we've uh, had a break from uh, Isaiah, so let me just remind you very, very quickly. Chapter 1 revealed how far Israel was from the true God. They were still actually very, uh, very religious, but they were not really interested in God at all. And then chapters uh, 2, 3 and 4 oscillate between wonderful pictures of hope for the future but also, but, but also, also terrible warnings to God's people in his day because of the way that they had abandoned him. And everywhere God is the judge. Isaiah chapter 3 verses 13 to 14 sums it up in many ways. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard, he says, anticipating what we're going to see this morning. God is a judge in Isaiah 1 to, 1, 1 to 4. But he is more than that. And Isaiah 5 starts to reveal that. God is a lover too. Isaiah chapter 5 reveals God's raw emotions, not just as a judge violated against, but a lover rejected, a husband abandoned. 
God gets angry. In order to uh, uh, understand uh, the heart of God, though, we first of all must look at what um, is made very clear in verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah 5. Isaiah actually begins um, this chapter um, keeping the owner of the vineyard relatively anonymous. He just wants us to hear a story, a song. It's a song, first of all, about a loved one. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choices of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. The natural state, says Isaiah, of this vineyard that the loved one owned was fine, was perfect. It was on a fertile hillside. The preparation of this vineyard by the owner by the loved one, was exemplary. The soil was dug up, it was cleared of stones. The quality of the stock that was chosen to, uh, to plant up this vineyard was uh, excellent. They were the choicest vines. The loved one's ongoing commitment to the care of the vineyard was without fault as well. He built a watchtower. So naturally, He expects fruit. He invests great energy, eagerly chiselling a wine press out of the solid rock so that he can take those lovely grapes he's looking forward to and make them into wine. And then what does he get? He looked for a good crop of grapes but it yielded only bad fruit. Yielded only literally stink fruit. Now, Isaiah's listeners need to be in no mistake. This is a responsible, caring, assiduous vineyard owner. It's nothing that he has done wrong that has caused this stinking crop. And then the person changes. Started being a song about a loved one, but now it's shifted. Now the song is by the loved one. We are being invited now to identify with this owner of the vineyard. Verse 3, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? What more could I have done, he answers. Answer, nothing. Why did the uh, uh, vineyard yield bad grapes? Answer, something must have happened to the vines. What's the solution then? What's the farmer's solution? Well, there is only one. Now I tell you what I'm going to do, verse 5, to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge, it will be destroyed, I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated with briars and thorns, briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. He is going to remove protection, removing that fence and wall. He is going to remove his care 
he won't prune the vines, he won't hoe the ground, he'll let it be overgrown, he'll let the animals come in and eat the, eat the vines. But, but here, there's an edge of anger starting to come in, isn't there? There's intensity in the verbs that he uses. And also a hint of supernatural power. I will command the clouds to drop no more rain. Something more going on just than the natural disappointment of a, of, a, of a viticulturist whose crop has failed. There's anger, even supernatural anger beginning to show itself. And then to complete the story, the, his cover is blown. The song reveals the loved one. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. This is the Lord Almighty, God himself. The vineyard that he's talking about is, is God's people, the house of Israel, the men of Judah, whom he loves. They are the garden of his delight. Do you see that? so important that we, we see this. God loves these people. God cares for these people. God has patiently invested himself in these people. Everything else that God says must be seen in this, con- uh, 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 um, in this context. He is a passionate, faithful lover. How do you think that applies today? Well, in one sense, I have to say, it applies to all people throughout the world. The New Testament makes it very plain. God loves all people. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, says John in John 3.16. Or uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, speaking to... um, a group of pagans in a town called Lystra who um, had um, no particular special knowledge of God, but Paul says to them, God has shown kindness to you by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Everyone in the world, Paul was convinced, knows something about God's care. I've seen enough about God to see that he is like this good owner of the vineyard. And God too waits patiently for the world. 2 Peter chapter 3, you you were looking at with Graham um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. We saw God is patient, not wanting any to perish. Now this song of the vineyard in lots of ways, in lots of dimensions, actually is appropriate for the whole of God's world to hear. That's one of the shocking elements of it for us. Is that there seems to be an emphasis on God's particular care for his people here. 
This is the men of Israel, the people of, uh, of, of Judah that God is particularly addressing. And we, we must see this parable, this story, in its most pointed way as being a warning to us who gather as God's people. So who does it apply to? Well, everyone, yes. To God's church in particular. How, then, does this uh, parable apply? What, what are we supposed to see? We've already seen it. Let me, let, let me just reinforce it. We must see that God is good. God cares. God loves It's a very common cry uh, amongst people today. How can God allow so much suffering? How can we believe in a good loving God in the world that that we live in today? And that is not a forbidden question at all. The Bible addresses it um, in in various places. But frankly I see both inside and outside of the church what amounts sometimes to a, a morbid obsession about uh, suffering, which loses sight of the overwhelming evidence that there is in this world of God's goodness. And I thank God that there's an increasing number of, um, uh, of films out there that are starting to uh, try to celebrate good things in the world. Just occasionally they, uh, um, they uh, look back to God as well and recognise that God is the source of all good things, as James chapter 1 says. We need to make sure that any questions about suffering are in the context of overwhelming evidence about the the goodness of God or we will become obsessed with those things to a point which distorts our appreciation of God's world. Like the wife obsessed with her husband's failures who ruins her marriage as a result or the son who loses sight of his parents' love because he just cannot get over one particular failing that they have. Relationships are destroyed by an unbalanced obsession about uh, evil and suffering sometimes. And uh, the Bible in general and this, this, this uh, parable in particular wants us to see that God is good. God cares. God gives good things. If that's true for people in general, how more particularly true is it for Christians? Praise be, says uh, the Apostle Paul, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This parable then is an important reminder to us of the goodness of God. But it is also a reminder that God's patience with us is limited. And that's what, uh, in fact, Isaiah goes on to emphasise in verses 8 to 30. The parable shows us the goodness of God and starts to show us something which becomes very, very clear in verses 8 to 30. The anger of God. 
We need to explore that then, as we began to do at the beginning. Isaiah records for us six woes. And it is impossible, I have to say, to interpret these as as uh, C.H. Dodd's natural results of our sin, or even as Steve Chalk's anger at the results of our sin, but not at us. There is intense personal anger here on the part of God with them. Verse, verse 25, for instance, the Lord's anger burns against his people, his hand is raised and he strikes them down. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His, sta- his hand is still upraised. Why is God angry? Woe number one. He is angry with the greedy. Verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. There, a report came out this week by Shelter entitled Priced Out. It said that homelessness in rural areas of South East England is rising three times as fast in urban areas. Homelessness. Why? Well, partly uh, uh, and significantly due to the rise in people owning second homes. Woe to you who had house to house till no space is left. And I wonder whether we Christians are particularly different in our greed. I wonder if you, for instance, uh, analyse the size of house we, we live in compared to the income that we get, whether uh, you, would, you would find that we had chosen significantly smaller houses than the non-Christians around because we'll just have as much as we need and give away the rest. Or are we no different? I wonder how much money the good things that God gives us we give away. And thank God actually Christians in general still in this country, are by far the best givers. I was speaking to a fundraiser in a charity uh, some time ago. Um, uh, The charity wasn't um, focused on Christians. He said, still, we have to recognise that the Christians are the backbone of our giving. I can't remember what the charity was now, but um, you wouldn't expect Christians to be particularly interested in it. But they gave more in that area, as well as to the specific... uh, Christian charities. No, Christians generally are still not too bad. But what about you? And you know, this greed that God is talking about starts very young at Christmas. Now, of course, we shouldn't be Scrooges. But uh, in some situations at least, it seems to me, children get a very distorted view of what's a reasonable amount of possessions to own. Or uh, woe number two. 
those uh, obsessed with amusement. Verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after their drinks, who stay late up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. Now God's not against uh, alcohol, he's not against fun, he's not against uh, musical instruments. But he is against an obsession with all of those things that squeezes out God. They have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Uh, Some time ago, Neil Postman wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he demonstrated that our obsession with amusement and distractions is actually destroying the fabric of our lives. Or woe number three, those, um, as uh, Isaiah seems to describe it, harnessed to sin. Verse 18, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. There may be some uh, intentional progression here. They start off bound only with cords to this sin. They draw it along with cords. But uh, sooner or later, those of us, uh, as we indulge in sin, find that we are harnessed to wickedness with massive cart ropes. And what, uh, what keeps us tied to those cords when they're still weak enough to be broken is deceit. We deceive ourselves. And later on, uh, those ropes just feel too strong. And what is that deceit? Verse 19. They say, Let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. Ignoring the state they're in. They almost mock judgment. And harnesses are very, very difficult finally to break. James said, after desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Or woe number four, those who redefine sin. Verse 20, um, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, we cannot live with the knowledge of our sin for very long. So if we're going to keep going in it, we must redefine it. We must try and persuade ourselves that actually what we're doing is really good, not evil, light, not dark, sweet, not bitter. I remember so vividly reading uh, an article in a Sunday magazine by a woman on why I had an abortion. She said, I had an abortion because I loved that child and I didn't want to bring it into the world at a moment in my career when I couldn't give it my best attention. She weep, doesn't it? 
Uh, it's all very well speaking of a woman's right to choose but not if it ignores a child's right to life. We redefine. We find clever, slippery words of spin to claim that evil is good and bitter is sweet. (coughs) Well, number five, on the self-satisfied, verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. There are few things that God hates more than arrogance. And yet uh, our world is filled with people who are desperately coming up with sophisticated arguments. Remember I may have told you this story before um, as a well-known sociologist um, uh, who's re- retired now, who um, devoted his life really to um, um, finding ways of, of cleverly justifying promiscuity and, and so on. A friend of mine said, uh, you could be half impressed by his articles until you saw him at the Freshers' Disco, desperately as a 40-something trying to get off with these young new undergraduates. He's a desperate man. Maybe wise in his own eyes. But not in God's. Woe number six. On the heartlessly self-indulgent, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. And here's some encouraging words perhaps for a moment. Heroes, champions. Surely we, we need heroes for justice, don't we? We need champions for the innocent and the weak. But these, what's their heroism? Mixing drinks. They take bribes. They deny justice to the innocent. It's fascinating to, to compare this to the binge drinking culture that we have today. People admire each other for getting lakeless. It's quite extraordinary. It was ever thus. There is a heartlessness then. Self-indulgent heartlessness. It no longer seems to applaud heroes and champions of true dimension. But here's the question I want to ask. How profoundly different are we I said, didn't I, that that, that this particularly, pointedly, applies to us, the people whom God has shown his special personal care to. And maybe we can applaud ourselves that we're not out in the centre of Oxford getting uh, uh, completely drunk and getting into brawls, that uh, um, we don't have too many second homeowners here. 
But are we profoundly different? Do we deceive ourselves about sin, for instance, allowing ourselves to be drawn along with those little cords, not knowing that soon there'll be cart ropes? Do we redefine sin? Now, a little, a little bit of watching a sexually explicit film, well, that'll spice up my married life, won't it? Are we wise in our own eyes? Yes, we have to examine ourselves particularly carefully on that because we seek wisdom. But is it our wisdom? Or God's? Are we heroes and champions for God's causes? Or much lesser causes? Now Israel had slipped a long way and thank God most of God's people have not slipped quite so far but we need to let these words bite. These are the words of a God who is angry. Is an angry God a sub-Christian God? Well actually, uh, no. Jesus, when he was speaking to uh, the Pharisees in, uh, uh, in his day, in Matthew 23, pronounced seven woes on those Pharisees, not just six. Jesus, who told another parable about a vineyard in Luke chapter 20, spoke about an owner who finally comes and kills the tenants of the vineyard because they refused to give him his share of the harvest. This is the anger of a passable God, of a passionate God, of a God who truly loves, who cannot but be angry when his care and love is rejected. But God's anger is not the last word. Frighteningly, God's anger is the last word in Isaiah chapter 5. And Isaiah 1 to 5 stands as a prologue for the, for, for the whole of Isaiah. We'll see next week that uh, it moves into a, um, a, a, a different mood and different uh, material from Isaiah 6 onwards. This is, this is the introductory summary to the whole of Isaiah's message. And it ends with God's judgment and anger. But Isaiah itself doesn't end with God's anger. That's what we need to explore for just a couple of minutes. We've seen the goodness of God. We've seen the anger of God. Now we need to see the faithfulness of God. And I want to take you just to two passages, just just quickly, in Isaiah, to see how this message reaches its fulfilment. The first is in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. Isaiah 40 then speaks to the people after 
God has sent them into exile after God's anger has worked itself out in the nation's life. And God says, be comforted. My love lasts longer than my anger. My love is stronger than my anger. He reassures them their sin has been paid for but it's not at all clear how. Until we get to Isaiah 53. Just flicking forward we get to uh, Isaiah 53 verse 5. Isaiah 53 portrays a servant. A servant who, who stands in the place of Israel. Who stands in the place of God's people. And suffers on their behalf. Chapter 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. Isaiah looks forward to a servant whom he never saw, but we have seen. Jesus Christ. Someone who actually will absorb the consequences of our sin within himself. And because he is God made son, God made man, the son of God, because he is God in the flesh, we can see that it is God as man who finally absorbs God's wrath against our son into himself. God the Father and God the Son agreeing together. This righteous anger that I feel cannot be vented on those people. It must be absorbed within my person as father and son. Can God be angry? Raising the final expression of his anger against our sin, against human sin, was against himself as a human. Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And darkness came over the land and he died. I have to say, we have two options in asking the question, does God get angry? One is to say no and try to turn God into some sort of anemic country vicar like um, uh, the, the Reverend Tims in Postman Pat, who never could possibly get remotely angry because he's so nice. The other is to engage seriously with a God of passionate love and turn to Jesus on the cross 
and say, God is extraordinary. That you whose emotions were so stirred up by my rebellion should nevertheless be prepared to absorb that within yourself. Apostle Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Only when we see the passable God, the passionate God, the God who loves with extraordinary passion, will we see the cross as the final expression of the most extraordinary love.